thanks to Avast for supporting the Bureau with Frank Fagluzzi. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. For me, it was the end of innocence. I wonder if we're really all on the same team. It was a horrific moment. Past is prologue. We just identified the mastermind of 9-11. I think you need to be concerned about this guy called Osama bin Laden. My resignation was because I was upset with the government. American extremists travel abroad for training, orientation, indoctrination. Canada identified nine American organizations as an international terrorist organization. There is little to zero evidence that it actually stops terrorist attacks. 2006 New Yorker magazine article described Ali Soufan as coming closer than anyone to preventing the September 11th attacks and implied that he would have succeeded had the CIA been willing to share information with him. He resigned from the FBI in 2005 after publicly chastising the CIA for not sharing intelligence with him, which could have prevented the attacks. Ali Soufan has published two books, including... The Black Banners, The Inside Story of 9-11 and the War Against Al-Qaeda. And again, a book called Anatomy of Terror, From the Death of Bin Laden to the Rise of the Islamic State. He's the CEO of the Sufan Group, founder of the Sufan Center, and if you've ever watched the Hulu television series, The Looming Tower, you know it's about our next guest. Ali Sufan joins us for the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Ali, you've got such a compelling personal story, uh, personally and professionally. So I know my listeners really enjoy hearing the personal journey of our guests. So, you know, as they say famously, let's start at the beginning. And would you share with us how you went from someone who may be viewed as an atypical FBI agent uh, in the sense of your background and uh, how you found yourself joining the Bureau. Thanks, Frank. And it's uh, great to be on your podcast. Uh, any podcast with the name The Bureau is, uh, is going to be an amazing one. So I appreciate uh, joining you today. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at my upbringing and my life, you don't think, uh, you know, an FBI agent was in the horizon. I grew up in Lebanon. Uh, during the Civil War, immigrated to the United States uh, about 16 years old. Uh, I went to school in rural Pennsylvania, and I was really wanted to be an academic. I wasn't thinking uh, uh, that I wanted to work in national security in any way, shape, or form. My focus in my research in undergrad and in graduate school was 
the impact of non-state actors on uh, national security. And, you know, I think uh, when I was in college, a couple of my fraternity brothers uh, were interested in joining the FBI. So they applied uh, to the Bureau and it was a joke how long I will last in the process if I apply uh, to the FBI. And that's how it started. I lost the bet because I'm the only one who get in. I thought I will be out in, <laughs> in about a month. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, every time they wanted to do an interview, I was available. And you know, you went through the process every time you, you know, they ask you to go into a test, you go and you show up to the federal building or wherever the test is and you do it. And and then, uh, you know, they put you on the polygraph machine and all the things that every FBI applicant uh, and agent went through. Ali, what year was that when you uh, when you began that application process? Oh, I think uh, I began the application process, if I'm not mistaken, 1995 or 1996, but I wasn't in until 1997. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, kudos to whoever the recruiter the recruiters were that that foresaw the need for hey uh, diversity, Middle East understanding, Arabic language understanding, uh, all prior to nine eleven, um, all all good. Kudos to the Philadelphia office of the FBI. I was processed through Philly, so. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you you go through the academy experience. What uh, what's next? What uh, where did they assign you? So I went to New York, um, and in a way, you know, people who have experience with the FBI, nobody wanted to be assigned to New York. It's the biggest FBI office, but also it's one of the most expensive cities in the world. And to just go to New York wasn't something many FBI agents wanted to do. Um, So I was assigned to the New York office, and that was actually very good for me. In New York, I um, realized that there's a lot of things you can do in, uh, in that division. I, you know, New York is uh, a great office, uh, the number one when it comes to organized crimes, one of the best offices when it comes to foreign counterintelligence because of the UN and other uh, foreign entities over there. Uh, they have a great um, white collar um, division, but also they have something that many other FBI offices did not have. They have a Joint Terrorism Task Force. At the time, the Joint Terrorism Task Force was limited to few offices in the FBI. And um, in New York, you go through a process. So you don't get assigned immediately to a squad like it happens like happens when, in other divisions. So you go through the applicant process where you basically do backgrounds on applicants who people who are applying either to be FBI agents or uh, to other positions in the government. And then um, you do, um, um, you go to special operations where you learn how to do surveillance and other similar activities. And then you do a tour in the command post, two weeks tour, one during the day, one at night, uh, taking calls, responding to threats. And after that, you get assigned to a squad. During that time, when I was going through the new agent you know, cycle in New York, I actually wrote uh, a memo about uh, a person called Osama bin Laden. And I believed that this guy might be very dangerous uh, in the future. And we need to pay attention to him. I gave it to my supervisor at the time, uh, Tom Donlan. Uh, and uh, Tommy took it to the ASAC at the time, uh, who was... Uh, Pat DeMora, who became later the assistant director of mm. the office in New York. Indeed. And then Pat gave it to John O'Neill. Um, you know, and John was the SAC, the special agent in charge. And, uh, you know, he had 
at the time, the National Security Division. And the National Security Division was divided into basically the foreign counterintelligence with all its branches and branch C, which was the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So John was really interested in why, you know, I'm talking about Osama bin Laden. I had uh, a meeting with him. I explained, you know, my thoughts about uh, bin Laden. I, you know, he came, um, you know, during my research in grad school. Um, I thought that uh, this guy have uh, the credibility, have the charisma. He's a true believer. He uh, talks the talks, and I believe he will walk the walk. And by then, bin Laden had already declared jihad on the United States on August 23rd, 1996. Not knowing at the time, the Bureau and uh, uh, some folks uh, at the agency, the CIA, they were already aware of Osama bin Laden. Uh, We had two people from New York uh, working, um, you know, a file that they opened on Osama bin Laden. But at the time, Osama bin Laden was looked upon as a financier more than as a terrorist operative. And uh, I want to I want to stop here because this I, I don't want our listeners to gloss over this. Let me get this right. You are at this time when you write this memo, nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, you and and you. If I've got it right, are you assi- even assigned to an investigative squad at this point? Or are you still taking like phone calls and complaints? And no, I was I was an applicant. <laughs> you were work. Yeah, you're working background investigations on job applicants. Yeah, yep, I just exactly. I can't. You're 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 a brand spanking new agent in in the largest, most complicated FBI office in the country. And you, you know, I, I can't emphasize this enough for those who don't have the background in, in this huge bureaucracy called the FBI, but you are, you feel compelled to write a memo to, to senior executives and, and, and Matt to executive management and say, Hey, uh, you probably have no clue who I am because I'm sitting here, you know, investigating applicants, but I think you need to be concerned about this guy called Osama bin Laden. Do I yeah, that right? yeah. I mean, I gave it to my supervisor, and I have to uh, admit that um, he was really smart to look at it and said, "You know what? Uh, I need to <laughs> run this up the chain." But interestingly enough, the supervisor at the time did not know who Osama bin Laden was. <laughs> sure, sure, of course. Um, you know, uh, the focus of his squad at the time was mostly, you know, applicants uh, at the beginning, and then um, you know, Palestinian groups. Um, later on. So uh, anyway, you know what? I explained to, to John my, uh, my concerns about Osama bin Laden. He actually told me that we have two people working uh, the bin Laden case in New York, and, uh, and those folks are not assigned to the division, to Branch C, but they are on TDY at the CIA. And the way they view bin Laden was as a terrorism financier, but uh, John O'Neill you know, agreed with me that this guy is way more dangerous and we should not only look uh, at him as a terrorism financier. Then, um, you know, I I was assigned to a squad. Uh, My first squad was uh, a squad that dealt with uh, terrorism uh, from the Middle East, not necessarily Al-Qaeda at the time, uh, because, you know, bin Laden did not do the East Africa embassy bombings yet. We did not have the CAM bomb and TAM bomb um, you know, uh, cases open. The bombing investigating uh, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania and Nairobi, Kenya. So I was assigned to a squad that dealt both with terrorism and uh, foreign counterintelligence from states in the Middle East uh, that uh, were 
declared or designated as a terrorist sponsor nations. During that process, I continued to every now and then, as instructed by John, to monitor uh, Al-Qaeda and monitor Osama bin Laden. And I actually kept together a big, thick binder Every time Bin Laden spoke, uh, interviews, uh, you know, statements and so forth uh, on my desk, I used to just print them and, you know, do analysis of uh, some of these things and even uh, translated uh, from Arabic to English, the Declaration of Jihad of 1996. Then there was the interview, the interview that John Miller uh, mm. who worked at the time at ABC News. He then worked later, uh, you know, he's, he's currently the head of intelligence and counterterrorism for NYPD. The interview that John did with Osama bin Laden, uh, that was, I think he did the interview in May of uh, 1998. During uh, that interview, bin Laden made uh, significant threats against the United States. Uh, when the interview was broadcasted in June of 1998, I was convinced that that was a warning, a warning that bin Laden is ready to act. I uh, actually told John that, and I told um, the person who was coordinating uh, Sunni extremist uh, terrorism at the time uh, on, on the JTTF about uh, this thing. I remember when, uh, when I did that, I actually made a call. I was doing surveillance and made a call <laughs> from, uh, from my car <laughs> to, uh, mm -hmm. to, to talk to, uh, I believe it was Kevin Cruz, who was a coordinator at the time on, on the JTTF for these kind of things. And guess what? You know, a few weeks later, August 1998, August 7, 1998, Bin Laden did his uh, first overt strike against the United States, attacking two embassies one in Nairobi and one in Dar es Salaam. And um, that was uh, the very first time that people in Washington, people in DOJ, even people in the White House uh, took bin Laden seriously. Um, it was very difficult. And you know the culture, Frank, um, as good as anyone, when you try to tell headquarters on the morning of uh, August 7th, it was a Friday, you try to tell FBI headquarters, look, guys, we believe bin Laden did it. And the answer was, why do you think bin Laden did it? You know, bin Laden never did one terrorist attack against the United States, so why now? And the idea in headquarters at the time was to send the Washington field office to Nairobi and Dar es Salaam to investigate because the Washington field office was in charge of all extraterritorial investigations, meaning investigations outside the United States. Now, if bin Laden was behind the attack, since uh, New York is the office in charge of anything bin Laden, New York will be in charge of the investigation. So the, finally, the decision was to send WFO and a small contingency from New York. A week or so into the investigation, it was uh, obvious that bin Laden was behind the attack. The Bureau was able to apprehend a suicide bomber who actually survived the bombing, uh, Al-Wali. And um, uh, John Anasaf, um, a very famous counterterrorism agent in New York, he was uh, the agent who basically put Omar Abdurrahman in jail and uh, worked the first World Trade Center bombing. Um, you know, interviewed Al-Wali, and he was in the hospital at the time. Um, and um, John's gut feeling uh, was very, you know, spot on. He believed that this guy was involved in the attack. 
So John looked at him and he just suddenly slammed the table and I said, write the number. And he said, what number? He said, the number that you called when you survived. And the guy just took a pencil and he wrote the number. Mm. Uh, he thought that John and you, and he was shocked with everything that's happening. And guess what? That number was a Yemen number that becomes extremely important in our investigation against Al-Qaeda to include 9-11. And that number uh, was contacted at various times by bin Laden's satellite in Kandahar. And this is how we were able to connect uh, the bombing uh, in Nairobi to uh, Osama bin Laden's satellite. Mm. Uh, then also, um, you know, the declaration uh, of or, or the claims of responsibility. Um, there uh, were three claims of responsibility, one a general claim, one for Nairobi, and one for Dar es Salaam. The language in the claims of responsibility were taken uh, straight from bin Laden's statements. And it was really helpful that I kept that binder with all bin Laden's statements on my desk because we were opening it and looking at all the similarities between the claims of responsibility and between what bin Laden had said before. And this is how uh, we were able to prove uh, without reasonable doubt, investigatively without reasonable doubt, I might add, not in a court, that bin Laden was behind the attack and few people were arrested uh, who were connected directly to Osama bin Laden, to Al-Qaeda network, and specifically to the East Africa embassy bombings. We brought them to the United States, we prosecuted them in the U.S., and they currently um, serve time in uh, federal jails. Mm. And and so we next see uh, the American people next see the work of bin Laden, correct me if I'm wrong, with his first attempt at attacking the World Trade Center. Do I have that right? No, the, the World Trade Center attack happened before in 1993. And uh. it wasn't really bin Laden who was involved in it. It was mostly Ramzi Yusuf and some people who were involved with the Mujahideens and fought against the Soviets. So Osama bin Laden was uh, funding that network at the time, right. but he's not directly involved in the, the, the World Trade Center bombing. Frankly, Ramzi Yusuf was not a member of Al-Qaeda and did not give a pledge no. to Osama bin Laden. He was um, just... Um, um, a freelance a terrorist, Important. and he was okay. working. Yeah. You know, with, he was working with his relative Kalachik Muhammad uh, at, at the time, and they had a base in the Philippines, and they were uh, recruiting people who were former uh, mujahideen in Afghanistan, specifically from Southeast Asia. And uh, Ramzi Yusuf had a few plots: one to, um, you know, you know, blow up planes over the Pacific. It's known as the Bujinka plot and one to attack the World Trade Center and, uh, you know, take it down. When he came over to carry out on the attack, uh, on his attack, the World Trade Center attack, um, he found a big network to help him and assist him and provide aid to him. And that was the network of the blind sheikh of Omar Abdurrahman and a um, few people, few Mujahideen who were connected to the Afghan Jihad and indirectly, and some frankly directly connected to Osama bin Laden. So you, you know, things are now beginning to ring true, hopefully to folks around the intelligence community that this guy, uh, bin Laden, is extremely worthy of attention. Do you see what you believe to be at this time the appropriate escalation in targeting of bin Laden? What are, what are you observing and what, what's your, what are your perceptions of what's happening in the community? 
mean, that's a complicated question in so many different ways. I know it's a very simple and reasonable question to ask, mm -hmm. but I think in the FBI, especially in New York, we were very concerned about Osama bin Laden and about what he's doing. Uh, some people in the CIA were very concerned about Osama bin Laden, but then you have the government, you have the White House, you have the NSC, you have the, uh, the uh, you have DOJ, you have State Department. Unfortunately, not all of us were on the same wavelength regarding uh, the dangerous impact that Osama bin Laden might have. So from our perspective, um, CIA, FBI, and others, I think kind of like in so many different ways, investigatively, operationally, uh, the gloves were off. We went against uh, the cells of Al-Qaeda. We disrupted cells in London. We disrupted cells in Albania. We disrupted cells in Italy, in Morocco, in Pakistan, in so many different countries. We arrested a lot of people. We stopped a lot of plots. And uh, the time between uh, August of 1998 to uh, around the millennium, uh, was a time uh, of many successes. Many people were apprehended. Uh, actually, Al-Qaeda uh, was planning to uh, attack a third embassy in Albania. And uh, because of the actions of the FBI and our uh, sister agency, you know, the CIA, um, we were able to help our allies in Albania to stop that plot and apprehend the people who were involved in it. So there was a lot of successes from that perspective. Now, that was tactical and operational successes. Unfortunately, we did not find that the political leadership and our senior leadership were taking that threat seriously. For example, what happened after the East Africa embassy bombing? After the East Africa embassy bombing, we launched a few missiles on Afghanistan. That was a retaliation. And these missiles basically hit empty spaces and, and, and some bathrooms and some training camp. Uh, that's it. Um, we did not uh, respond appropriately. And even when we responded against Osama bin Laden, there was no uh, political uh, unified support for what happened. At the time, if you recall, everybody was so consumed with Monica Lewinsky, with the blue dress. Mm. Uh, people started to say that, uh, you know, the United States, the Clinton administration, um, you know, launching missiles on Afghanistan, this is wag the dog. Uh, they tried to create confusion. So it was all about partisan politics. And unfortunately, uh, that time period um, had a lot to do with us missing politically the warning signs for not only the USS Cole, but also for the East Africa for the uh, for for 9/11, um, because you had people who literally believed that there is nothing called terrorism. The terrorism was uh, nothing but something that the Clinton administrations are doing in, in order to kind of make people look somewhere else, not you know focusing on their corruption. Uh, I remember when. Um, the new administration came, um, came up, um, the Bush administration. I remember in June 2001, you know, I was doing a brief to um, some senior people from the Senate and uh, about the USS Cole. And basically, um, one of the senior staffers uh, flatly told me and my team that, unfortunately, the White House, his words, not mine, don't want... Um, bin Laden to be involved in the USS Cole. And it was shocking to me as a case agent 
for a case. And here I am, the briefing, by the way, was in the US embassy in Sana'a, Yemen. It was shocking to me to hear that. And I said, well, this is, <laughs> what do you mean? He said, well, you know, the administration believed the White House and we disagree with them. And that guy was big supporter of the administration, uh, the person who was talking. He said, unfortunately, the White House believed that if uh, bin Laden, uh, you know, is in, you know, behind the attack, uh, then they have to do something. And if they don't do something, the president look weak. But unfortunately, if you say it's bin Laden who's behind it, then the administration have to do something and they don't believe that they have the American people behind them. Half of the American public believes that, you know, the president is uh, not the real president. This is because of the aftermath of what happened with uh, Gore versus Bush. Mm. And, and, and I was like shocked to hear this. I literally moved the guy who was standing, you know, in front of me, uh, you know, and I'm trying to get out of the, from the room. I literally moved him and I said, that's way above my, uh, my grade level. Mm -hmm. uh, Bin Laden was behind the attack and we left. And that's why there was no retaliation. There was no retaliation uh, against the USS call, uh, against Bin Laden for carrying out the USS call on October 12 of 2000. The Clinton administration did not want to retaliate for political reasons. Um, some of it has to do with foreign policy and what's happening in the Middle East at the time. But also they don't want it to, you know, do something um, and create, um, you know, escalate before a new administration come. And then uh, we were very busy with, uh, with the election, uh, with uh, you know, a very heated election that resulted in the Supreme Court deciding who the president was. So nobody cared. And uh, by the time, if you look into the 9-11 commission, uh, when they asked uh, Wolfowitz why the administration did not retaliate for the USS call attack, his answer was, oh, by the time we took over, it was a stale case. That was a response. And um, unfortunately, us not retaliating, us not taking the threat of bin Laden seriously, really enraged him more and kind of, uh, you know, pushed him towards, um, you know, doing what he did on September 11, uh, 2001. Well, this is a, a great place to pause and reflect on some of the things you just said. And, you know, one of my takeaways, you know, fast forwarding to our present state today is the kind of uncanny ability of, of Americans and American uh, government officials to politicize just about anything. And yep. that, that includes at, at that time, a international terrorism threat. Uh, today, where are we? We've politicized a global pandemic. We have a domestic terror threat facing us uh, square uh, in the face. And we politicize everything and often at our own peril because it causes us to either minimize or even ignore a threat that should be uniting us, quite, quite frankly. And so for, for our listeners who are thinking, boy, I, I, you know, we, we've gone from a, a rookie FBI agent who writes a memo about this guy, Bin Laden, now finding himself at or near the center of the U.S. intelligence community's targeting of, of bin Laden, investigation of bin Laden. But there's more, so so much, much more. And I want to, uh, Ali, talk about 9-11. I want to talk yeah. about... I want to talk about your uh, your involvement um, before, during, after, what that looked like. If you could synopsize that for us, because I I want to get to the part where you you find yourself testifying before Congress 
and particularly about the whole question of what's called, by some, enhanced interrogation techniques and by others, torture. Hi, everybody. It's AG. I'm in for Frank, and I want to thank Avast for supporting the Bureau with Frank Faglucci. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. You can enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution called Avast One helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Avast offers award-winning antivirus protection that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Its firewall protection keeps your personal information secure and prevents attacks that seek to access our computers and steal our data. Avast even includes PC SpeedUp, which optimizes the background activity of all your apps in order to speed up your PC. I love the security and peace of mind I get from Avast. My favorite feature, personally, is their data breach monitoring, which enables me to find out if my online accounts have been compromised and whether my passwords need to be changed. I also like their ransomware protection, which secures your personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. I highly recommend giving it a try, and Avast One offers both free and premium options. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion, with a B, attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cybercrimes. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Again, that's avast, A-V-A-S-T, dot com. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, so... Uh, on October 12 of 2000, I was assigned to be the case agent on the USS Cole. So um, I went to Yemen and, uh, you know, I found myself, um, you know, running a major uh, investigation. And you know, in the FBI, there's investigations, regular investigations, and there is a major investigations. And a lot of agents, as you know, Frank, they go sometimes through their whole career without working um, a major investigation <laughs> not even running one. Right. And it was a very complicated investigation because you're not only dealing with the bureaucracy of your own organization, you're dealing with the Yemenis uh, and you're dealing with some entities in Yemen that uh, basically were more sympathetic to Al-Qaeda than, uh, <laughs> you know, than uh, are willing to, to work with us and help us. And also you're working with the intelligence community that at the time uh, they had their own agenda in what's going on in Yemen and what's going on in other places. So it was a little bit of a complicated investigation. Uh, during the investigation, I think early on, by uh, the end of October, early November, we were able to identify the mastermind and uh, of, of the attack, uh, Abdurrahim al-Nashiri, known as Mullah Bilal in Al-Qaeda, and um, connect him to Osama bin Laden. And uh, this specific character was also connected to uh, other plots and attacks to include uh, the East Africa embassy bombings. Actually, the suicide bomber in Nairobi uh, was his own cousin, and he uh, prepared him for the job. In the process of the USS Cole investigation, we found out that there were people who were directly involved in the USS Cole, had a meeting around the millennium uh, in Southeast Asia, again, who were directly involved in the call, uh, delivered $36,000 
to one of the main Al-Qaeda operatives, a person by the name of Khalad bin Atash, who was considered bin Laden's errand boy. So that was so confusing to me, to John O'Neill, to everyone who was working the investigation, our partners in NCIS. And we're thinking, why money going from a poor country to kind of like a wealthy country in Southeast Asia? What is the reason for that money? Was it a money that was left over from an earlier attack or plot? Because that, that meeting happened around the millennium again. So it's, you know, a few months before, you know, about 10 months before October 12 of 2000, when the call took place. We asked everyone in the intelligence community. We asked our, um, you know, allies. Anybody knows anything about the meeting? And basically, everybody told me, "No, we don't know anything about this." Uh, we started to do our own investigation. We had uh, legats in Singapore. We had legats in Kuala Lumpur. We had legats in Bangkok. They start following on leads. We uh, start putting, uh, you know, data together, statements, phone numbers, communication, trying to kind of like locate uh, where the meeting took place. We were able to locate it. We were able to locate phone numbers to include public phones that were used to arrange uh, for that meeting. Again, uh, we asked the CIA, we asked the NSA, we asked everyone, are you aware of anything that was happening and those people, any, anybody who's, who's, who might be involved in this. And basically the answer was no. To make a long story short, on September 12, when we were looking for these people in Yemen, um, I was handed a manila envelope. I opened this and it was all the answers that we've been asking for since November of 2000 about that meeting, about the people who were involved in that meeting. And unfortunately, some of the people that we were looking for where we were told possibly are on the planes that hit the Pentagon and the World Trade Center. So that definitely was, uh, you know, kind of, for me, it was, you know, the end of innocence. For me, it was like, you know what, I, I cannot believe um, what just happened. Um, yeah, and, you, know, you know, there are there are times in our careers, if you're in the uh, intel, counterintel, terrorism world, that prior i want to i want to emphasize this it's prior to 9/11 where you do have that kind of wake up call that you say you refer to it as the end of innocence where but i think many of us can recall yeah that first time where we thought you know i i wonder if we're really all on the same team i wonder if um, yeah. you know the, the american people kept hearing about connecting the dots after 9/11 but for many of us, prior to 9-11, it was more like uh, we don't even know where who holds the dots and where the dots are. And um, it sounds like that was that kind of experience. It was, it was a horrific moment. Uh, first of all, we had uh, the biggest terrorist attack against the United States, the biggest attack on our soil, uh, you know, since, uh, since Pearl Harbor. Then at the time, if you remember, at, um, you know, the first couple of days after the attack, we had no idea how many people died. We thought it was 50,000, 60,000 people. Everybody was giving different numbers. At that moment, a day after 9-11, I, I thought that and we were told that we lost contact with about 36 people from the JTTF, and we thought they were all missing and they all died. 
it wasn't true. Uh, thankfully, they were hiding in a building and they thought the building fell on them, but uh, they were all safe, thankfully. Mm. And John O'Neill died. Yeah, I want to, I want, let, let's uh, briefly, uh, we'd be remiss in not talking about John O'Neill. So ultimately, that, that memo you wrote years prior makes its way up the chain of command in the New York office to a guy by the name of John O'Neill. He becomes the, eventually the head of the New York office. He becomes a champion for uh, the, the, the notion that the U.S. intelligence community and the FBI are not devoting enough resources to Osama bin Laden. And the incredible irony, of course, is that John O'Neill, upon retirement from the FBI, becomes the head of security for the World Trade Center. You want to, uh, you want to kind of close out this just tragic story? So John took care of me. He helped me. He became a mentor. You know, he sent me to so many different places around the world on counterterrorism operations. And uh, he stayed uh, with me in Yemen for uh, a while, um, you know, when we were doing that at the early stage of the, of the USS call investigation. And he was aware of all these things in Southeast Asia, of these individuals that I was looking for in, in Yemen. And uh, the day that he had his going away party or his coffee, not necessarily the main party, unfortunately, he did not have the chance to have his own party uh, because he was murdered on September 11. Uh, I, I think it's, it was towards the end of August. I went out with him to get a sandwich from a diner across the street from the FBI office in New York. And uh, he took me out just because um, I was leaving in a few hours to go back to Yemen. And we were talking about the Southeast Asia meeting. We were talking about these outstanding leads that we need to figure out, you know, what's going on there. And then uh, he gave me a big hug at the corner of the office. And he said, you know, just come, come and visit. Don't be a stranger. I'm just going to be down the street. And he pointed at the World Trade Center. And he crossed the street, you know, and, um, you know, in the middle of the street, he looked back, I waved, he waved. And, um, you know, it's like we had, you know, we, we joked about something. Um, and then he, um, he went to, you know, to his office and he had his coffee a few hours later. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't attend because I had to, to return to Yemen. I have to catch a flight. And um, on September 11, I was calling him nonstop because I knew that was literally, you know, a couple of weeks later, I knew he was, he was in the World Trade Center. So I was calling him and, you know, it was going uh, to voicemail. And then we tried to call the office and check on him, but nobody in the office was answering at the time because, you know, the office is in downtown and it was a mess. And uh, we're trying to go through headquarters with everything. And uh, then uh, we get instructions to, to leave Yemen and go back home. We, um, you know, get everybody out. Uh, we went to the airport. We uh, jumped on a plane heading back to the U.S. And when the plane was on the tarmac, uh, literally, we uh, was probably one of the last person, um, me and a couple of other guys, to go on the plane. We were talking to the Yemenis and... Uh, uh, one of our colleagues from the agency came to me and he said, uh, look, um, you know, it's urgent. Um, you need to call FBI headquarters on a secure line. So we had to 
um, get the satellite, the secure satellite from the plane, from the cargo, literally, <laughs> and uh, put it down, um, connect it. And basically, you know, they told me, um, uh, you need to stay in Yemen. Everybody comes and you and uh, a partner at the time, he's an NCIS agent, uh, Robert McFain. He said, you guys need to stay. And I was really annoyed. What do you mean you need to stay? I mean, we're, we're under attack. <laughs> you know, we have war at home right. and you want us to follow up on leads for the U.S. call? The call will wait. And uh, the answer was, it's about what happened here. And uh, at that moment, I felt that, oh, shit, you know, I, I, I have like as if somebody put a knife in my stomach. Like, what did we miss? Why? You know, right. I, I just did not understand. Like, when you go to, to the embassy, somebody is going to hand you an envelope and you'll know what we're talking about and then we'll chat. So a couple of guys, uh, Ray Hokum and uh, a couple of guys from New York, from New York SWAT team, they said, no, no, we're not going to leave you alone. We'll stay with you. And we went back to the embassy. And this is when I was handed that envelope. And with everything that was going on at the time, the only thing I can do is read it, run out to the bathroom, and just puke my gut out. Ugh. That's the only thing I can do. Ugh. And then later on, we had it to go back and talk to these people who told us about the meeting and get more details and identify photos. And they were the photos that basically linked uh, some of the hijackers to Al-Qaeda, to Osama bin Laden. And that's how the U.S. government knew that uh, bin Laden was uh, behind 9-11. And uh, the person who identified a few of these photographs to us, few of the passengers who we had no idea what their involvement was at the time, but they were on these planes, um, was bin Laden's personal bodyguard, uh, 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 a Qaeda operative by the name of Abu Jandal. His real name is Nasser al-Bahri. And then the rest was history. Um, we knew that bin Laden was behind it. The president went on television and, um, and told the American people that al-Qaeda was behind it in a speech. And then after that, we were, um, you know, we, we were told by the State Department that they send um, uh, messages and uh, briefings to Mubarak, to Musharraf in Pakistan, to the King of Saudi Arabia, to all the Arab and Muslim leaders based on our interviews in Yemen uh, about um, why we believe that Osama bin Laden was behind uh, the attacks uh, on, uh, on the United States. And then um, the rest is history. Indeed, indeed it is. And I, I um, you know, as they say, as the words inscribed over the, the National Archives building say, the past is prologue. And, you know, terrorism hasn't, hasn't gone away. It's, uh, in fact, much closer to home. The threat has shifted. The international threat doesn't, doesn't wane. I want to, I want to, Fast forward, before we talk about the domestic situation in comparisons with what you've experienced in your career to the domestic threat we're facing now, don't want to um, miss this opportunity to talk about your testimony before Congress. And in particular, you know, your, your interview with a very major player by the name of Abu Zubeda. And, right. and, and, and I, wanna, I want you to talk about the whole wrangling over enhanced interrogation techniques uh, and and torture? Well, um, when the very first high-value detainee was arrested, uh, I was tasked to go and interview him. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, literally at hello, as they say, you know, I told him, what's your name? And he gave me a false name. 
I said, what if I call you Hani? Hani was the name that his mother nicknamed him as a child. And he had that oh shit look on his face. Mm -hmm. And I said, so, you know, don't worry, Hani. I've been on you for a long period of time. Um, you know, and I told him about a couple of things that he was involved in just to put the idea in his head that I'm not BSing him here. And then I said, there's one thing that I always appreciated about you from following you from far, that you're very, very good when it comes to operational security, to OPSEC. So what else, what, what did you really want to do that uh, you kind of like avoided to be, you know, allowed you to take risks, right? And then he looked at me and he said, and now I'm, I'm making that up with him. I mean, I, I knew that he got arrested. So he's going to think, okay, what, that's his state of mind. What wrong did I do? But also at the same time, somebody like him, I'm sure he's working on something. <laughs> it's, it's just so like, it's a it's, good it's guess. An assumption. It's, yeah. it's, it's a good guess. So I was so shocked. He looked at me and he said, oh, you're talking about that thing in Palestine. And I said, well, let's start there. And he gave me a plot in Israel. Now, even in the black banners, even after it was declassified, um, I could not say where the plot was or the nature of that plot, but they, you know, Al-Qaeda approved him to, uh, supported him to do a terrorist attack in Israel, attacking about uh, four or five different nightclubs, and they were hoping to kill 200 in each club. And he gave me the names. He already got the money from some funder from Saudi Arabia, $200,000 uh, for the operation. He gave us a lot of details. Now, the reason that I can say all these things now is because of um, the case that Alex Gibney uh, did against the U.S. government to release my notes from the Abu Zubaydah interview. And all the notes have been um, declassified and released. And a lot of the details about that plot is actually in the notes that were taken from you know, that interview. And if you look at the very first page in my own handwriting, uh, he identified himself as Abu Zubaydah. He was working, he received $100,000 from, or $200,000, I forget the exact number, from Saudi Arabia, from someone in Saudi Arabia, the name has been redacted, and the plot in Israel, literally at the very beginning. So when uh, we send that, there were a lot of people who are happy because he's basically cooperating immediately. Uh, George Tenet asked, that's amazing, who are the officers who are interrogating him? And they said two FBI agents. And he was upset, not because we're two FBI agents. He's upset because CTC didn't even bother to show up because they didn't believe that the guy was Abu Zubaydah. So um, by the time you know they showed up and they brought contractors with them, we already get details about plots. We already get details about KSM's involvement. And as you know, we, we identified him as the mastermind of 9-11. And it was really interesting how KSM was identified as the mastermind of 9-11. We were talking about a totally different threat, totally different plot that was coordinated by uh, Al-Qaeda operatives named Abu Muhammad al-Masri. And uh, my partner, during that time was uh, Stephen, Steve Godin from uh, the FBI office uh, in New York. He was assigned to headquarters at the time. And we didn't have any photo books. We didn't have pictures. So when he mentioned Abu Muhammad al-Masri, I um, asked Steve if uh, he can give me the picture of Abu Muhammad al-Masri because Steve had that old Palm Pilot um, and he downloaded the poster of the most wanted uh, 22 people <laughs> that yeah. the FBI put out after 9-11. Yeah. 
right. And we know that Abu Muhammad al-Masri was on it because of his involvement in the East Africa embassy bombing. And Steve was one of the case agents for the East Africa embassy bombing. So Steve took the Palm Pilot and he took his stylus and he started like clicking on that photo in order to make it bigger, you know, for old folks our age, they will know what I'm talking about with the Palm Pilot and the stylus and clicking on a photo to make it bigger. Abu Zubaydah was in his hospital bed and I said, is this a guy? And he said, no. And I was really frustrated. I was really upset because here we saved this guy's life. We're taking care of him. We're kind of his next of kin in the hospital. And he still lies to us. You know, we know who Abu Muhammad al-Masri is. And um, so I was mad at him. I said, so who the hell this guy is then? And without looking at the photo. And he said, come on, brother, don't play games with me. You know, this is Mukhtar. This is the one who did the plane operations. And we know that there is a Mukhtar, but we had no idea who Mukhtar was. So I turned the Palm Pilot, and it was a photo of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. At the time, we had no idea that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was a member of Al-Qaeda. He identified the mastermind of Al-Qaeda because we made a mistake in clicking on a photo. So I gave it back to Steve and I said, hey, dude, you gave me the wrong photo. Look, you gave me Mukhtar. And Steve kind of played with, you know, went along with it. He looked at it and he just realized what just happened. So our colleague from the agency standing with us, he had no idea what's going on. So Steve took him outside the hospital room to explain to him, we just identified the mastermind of 9-11. So a lot of these things, the same thing with Pedia, the same thing with a lot, you know, these things happened because of, uh, investigative uh, investigative techniques that you and um, you know any law enforcement individual right. understand. Like for example, we needed to know what Abu Zubaydah was talking about with the folks who were in his safe house because I'm sure they were planning something. So what we did, we went and we bought about 100, 150 empty audio tapes, and we painstakingly marked each and every one of them. And we put them on a table and rolled it in to his cell. And we had an audio recorder. Now, at the time, we only had three conversations that were approved by the DCI at the time to share with Abu Zubaydah of him talking on the phone. Mm. Okay. So we did a whole plan using these three interviews. The last interview we used, Abu Zubaydah forget to hang up the phone. Right. So I acted when he was talking to me, I acted as if I messed up. So I start hitting the button in order to stop it. Now he is reading me way more than I'm reading him because his life depends on it. So he realized that I messed up. He realized that there is something else on these tapes, not only phone calls, maybe a microphone because you can hear the TV in the background. Right. This is his first inkling that this is not just an intercepted conversation. There, there exactly. might be a, there might be a mic uh, where he there is. might that's, be a mic. That's and cap- this is why he was start telling us about when Pedia came up and all these people came up. And it wasn't like he said, "Oh, his name is Jose Pedia." It wasn't something like this. It wasn't as the vice president, you know, former vice president said, "Cheney, like you know, you put water on him and it's like a light bulb went out." This is not what happened. You know, he gave us information and description of two individuals. He only knew them with their, by their aliases. We put the description, somebody else from the agency in another station somewhere in the world looked at it and he said, oh my God, I just received these two 
passports that appears to be the same description of what this guy is saying. So he sent it to us and he said, hey, you know, a long shot, Hail Mary, but maybe, maybe there's something going on here. And we went and showed him the photo and guess what? It was Padilla and uh, Antalha. It was the two guys who were involved in so-called dirty bomb. So all these things were happening. And then suddenly when the torture issue came up, every success that we had when we were there, they claimed is because of the enhanced interrogation techniques. They being the CIA and or uh, the military? Not, not necessarily the CIA, but the leadership in the agency who was behind the program. People That's like it. George Dennett, people like Jose Rodriguez, yeah. people like a lot of folks in the CIA know the truth. A lot of folks in the CIA supported me. Actually, many people in the CIA, you know, were kind of like pushing me to, to stand up and say the right thing. Uh, during that time and after I came back because they hated what they were seeing. And then they went to their own inspector general and they complained. And that's why the inspector general of the CIA did a very thorough report about the program. And guess what? In 2004, the conclusion of the CIA's own inspector general, that even though the detention program of the CIA produced a lot of good results, and it did, because you know, a lot of the people who were arresting at the time were taking them to CIA facilities. And actually I was part of the, the program. <laughs> you know, I was interviewing Abu Zubayda in, during the, the CIA uh, you know, custody. Mm -hmm. um, but enhanced interrogation techniques, basically they could not find any evidence that it led to the disruption of one single imminent threat. Mm -hmm. This is the CIA's inspector general in 2004. That's the bottom line that I, I want our listeners to, to right. take away here is that whether you call it enhanced interrogation or whether you call it torture, there is little to zero evidence that it actually uh, stops terrorist attacks. And, and unfortunately, everything that they were saying, they were, they the dirty bomb, the apartment building bomb, the Brooklyn Bridge, all these kind of things, I was there when these things happened. And some of them are not even threats. Some of them are just big exaggerations of threats. Uh, like, for example, <laughs> Abu Zubaydah once, you know, we wanted to know everything that they were thinking, everything that they were doing, just to anticipate a plot. So we said, okay, so what plots did you guys talk about? And one of the plots that he mentioned, he said, oh yeah, some brothers wanted to attack a bridge. I said, what a bridge? Well, well you know, I, I don't remember. And then like 10 minutes into the conversation, he said, oh, by the way, yeah, I, I remember. Uh, it was a bridge from the Godzilla movie because Godzilla stepped on the bridge and so-and-so, another operative said, imagine what happens if that bridge falls and all these infidels die. So I said, so did you guys have a meeting about that? He's like, no, 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 that's it. That's everything that happened. So we write it. Kid you not, Frank, less than 24 hours from him telling us that it was on CNN. We can see it. We're watching it there. The government disrupted a plot against the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> Didn't even know the Brooklyn Bridge. I had to yeah. Google at the time to yeah. see what bridge was in the Godzilla movie. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, and, and again, we're back to the politicizing of very exactly. sensitive, very sensitive handling handling of threats um, and agencies thinking more about their own turf and their and leaders yeah. talking about their own power. And we had a lot of threats. Don't get me wrong. And it was a course. very dangerous situation. Extremely. But you know, so this is you know to go back to the enhanced interrogation techniques. Um, all these things were happening, and then the Obama administration came and they declassified uh, the OLC memos. 
And there was a significant push against the Obama administration claiming that the enhanced interrogation techniques saved lives. And there was uh, op-eds in uh, the Washington Post and op-eds in, I believe, the Wall Street Journal where Cheney and McCasey and some other people and Hayden wrote a joint op-ed about that. And then a lot of people, you know, at the time I was known in Congress, in DOJ, in the FBI, in the agency that I'm against the program, uh, but I didn't speak publicly about that at all. So, um, you know, people were telling me you need to set, set the record straight. I um, wrote an op-ed in uh, the New York Times called My Tortured Decision. And uh, I put my experience and said everything that you're hearing is wrong. And all the information came up uh, by... Uh, techniques that was not considered in his interrogation techniques or torture. And uh, that led me to testify in Congress about the program. Mm. Definitely, we had a lot of pushback against what I was saying. Some people try to make it FBI versus CIA because it's always, uh, you know, it's convenient. Exactly. But it wasn't like this. As I testified in Congress, I said some people from the CIA even left before I left. Um, and they were basically in the same position as we are. Some people try to, you know, like attacking me personally and try to shoot the messenger instead, which basically also convenient. And we've seen it happening a lot. But uh, fortunately in America, if um, you know the truth, if you believe in the truth, if you fight for the truth, if you fight hard enough, if you fight smart enough, uh, eventually the truth prevails. And now we know from the Senate report, we know from the CIA's own reports, we know from all the declassified documents to include my notes um, from a movie that, you know, on HBO by Alex Gibney about, about uh, you know, Abu Zubaydah and what happened with him. We know exactly what happened. We know the truth. And hopefully uh, we can turn the page on this dark history and learn from it so we cannot repeat these mistakes again. Yeah, I want to get to that because we, we may be in the throes of repeating some things already. I, you, you, I want our listeners to understand here that you, you mentioned your New York Times uh, opinion piece called My Torture Decision. You write this at what point in your career? Are you in the Bureau? Have you decided yet to resign? No, I left. So I you, yeah, you, you resigned from the FBI. Yep. And that must have been a tortuous decision in itself. Um, it was. And, um, and especially that, even with everything that's going on, first of all, I had to basically set the record straight on 9-11. Remember, with the first um, you know, congressional inquiry, um, it was all about the Phoenix memo, about uh, you know, all these kind of things. It's not about what really happened. And it wasn't until they did the 9-11 Commission that the 9-11 Commission came up with the conclusion that uh, that information that I was telling you about, the Southeast Asia meeting and all this information, was not shared with the FBI. I think uh, in Section 6, I believe, of the 9-11 Commission, it said that even though George Tenet and Colfer Black testified to the Joint Inquiry Committee that they passed the information to the FBI, after extensive research of documents that were not presented to people who prepared their statement, this is a Washington cover-up, we find them to be in error. And, and it wasn't until then that that happened. And definitely that wasn't uh, popular in some circles, right? And then you had the problem with the same people who refused to pass the information, uh, not agency, people, individuals who refused to. Now they, instead of being held accountable, now they are running the torture program. So it was, it was very difficult, but it, throughout that period, 
I can say that I had 100% support of everyone in the FBI, everyone in headquarters, everybody in the New York office, to include Director Mueller. And actually, when people wanted, you know, my 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 ass, mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, you know my statement to the 9/11 Commission and because of my position on torture uh, internally and in, you know in behind closed doors in the intelligence community, um, you know, Director Mueller was promoting me in the FBI. But I left because, you know, everything that I'm involved in, every operation that I was involved in, um, you know, some people in the U.S. government start to mess with it just because of me, not because of anything else. So for the sake of my team, for the sake of the people that I work with, for the sake of the JTTF, and, and, and the Bureau always pushed. They said, nope, Ali or nobody. Um, so I decided, you know what, this is not a healthy situation. Wow. I resigned, um, and the director did not know that I resigned until he was sending me to a mission, but they told him, hey, Ali is not in the FBI anymore. Oh. <laughs> Somebody did not give him my resignation letter early oh. on. And you know, Director Mueller doesn't, li- doesn't take that lightly. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> so was, no. That's what I was told, at least. Yeah, I no, I, I've, I've seen that firsthand in other situations. <laughs> I, I do, I, I think, you know, many of our listeners might be saying, <clears throat> you know, w- number one, Tremendous respect for making an incredibly difficult decision, um, but might also be saying, "Boy, this someone with this skill set and experience uh, would have been invaluable to stay on task, on mission, and and fight the battle." But I have to tell you, when uh, we we look at today's element, we look at the, the the four years of the Trump administration. Those very same people who might be critiquing your decision are, are, are many of the same people who said, boy, I wish more people would have resigned on a matter of principle, on a matter of yeah. rights, um, uh, 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 as, as kind of an objection and or to try to do the right thing. So there are, you know, there are times in, in our lives when, you know, very painful decisions have to be made. And sometimes it, it means resignation. Yeah. And you know what? Usually when you you resign from an agency, you resign because you're upset with them. You're upset with the leadership. My resignation was because I was upset with the government, not with the FBI. And I continue to have a phenomenal relationship with the Bureau and even the current leadership in the Bureau. But sometimes, you know, and, and you know that, Frank, firsthand, you can be way more effective outside the government than inside. Yes, I, I, you're, you're, you are, you are correct. It's, uh, I, I frequently have people on social media saying, gosh, I, Frank, we, we wish you were back in some, you know, leadership position in the government. And that is exactly my response, which is, yeah. uh, sadly, I, I do think I can have more influence outside than inside. Well, um, we don't have the red tape. We yeah. don't have the bureaucratic baloney. And like in the bureau, you cannot, talk publicly about any of these things. And when you talk internally, most probably people are not going to listen to you because they are also have a lot of political constraints. And my God, your listeners probably heard so much about all the political BS that we had to deal with, with the East Africa embassy bombing, with the USS Cole, with a lot of the different things. So I I think, uh, you know, from outside, you know, I've been um, thankfully very successful in defending my positions and speaking out on behalf of many people in our intelligence community, in the law enforcement community, uh, dealing with the threats from ISIS to Al-Qaeda, working uh, on uh, hostages and bringing hostages back home uh, while working closely with, uh, you know, the administrations to include, you know, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, the Obama administration, you know, working very closely with people in DHS and in, in the FBI and, and other government agencies on 
um, you know, identifying and, um, you know, kind of uh, putting the domestic terrorism threat in perspective. I was, as you know, one of the very first people who talk about domestic terrorism in an op-ed in the New York Times. And I got a lot of pushback from so many people at the time. Like, well, what are you talking about? And then we did a research about the similarities between uh, the, uh, the, uh, the terrorism threat that I experienced growing up with Al-Qaeda and um, you know, other groups and what's happening today in the Western world to include the United States. I testified about that in Congress and we continue to focus on this and we continue to put research, um, especially connecting uh, the disinformation domestic terrorism nexus to the public. And, um, and I can tell you, if I was in the government, there is no way, you know that, there is no way um, uh, I can do that. There is no way you can educate the public as you do every day if you're still in the, in the FBI. Right. So uh, sometimes, you know, we have, we have a job to do. And, uh, you know, I always tell people, when you take an oath to uh, defend this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that oath does not stop with a paycheck. Right. And we continue to do that. Indeed. Indeed. Now, you, you went there by, by, saying, by bringing up domestic terrorism. Let's go there uh, briefly. I, you know, I, I want to hear your uh, insights on what we're seeing now in America and particularly c- comparisons or not between radicalization to violent jihad and radicalization to things like January 6th and the violence at the Capitol. What, what, what are your thoughts? Look, you know, we always had a problem with domestic terrorism in the United States. Remember McVeigh, remember, you know, what happened in the 90s, um, the civil rights movement, before the civil rights movement. We always have a fringe element in the United States that, you know, have views and ideas and plans for the future that uh, um, not mainstream and the American people don't care about. Starting 2016, we started to see promotion of these ideas by foreign entities, specifically Russia, and individuals who always felt on the fringe in America started to feel emboldened because they thought that their numbers are really big on social media. Russian efforts were made, uh, you know, social media efforts to connect them with each other. We identified early on hundreds of accounts, all handsome men and uh, beautiful women, and all these individuals were uh, basically white supremacists. Let's put it the way it is. And uh, hardcore pro-Trump, white supremacists, uh, and some friends, you know, know, one former uh, white supremacist basically said to me, said like, you know, all these things are baloney because that's not how we talk in the movement. Eventually, all these accounts were linked to Russia, and all these uh, beautiful women and handsome men were pictures that were downloaded from dating sites in the UK. Uh, They're not even real. And then you had this bridge between the cyber and the physical. And that bridge was built because of not only the campaign, but the president himself was involved in promoting some of these false narratives. His... uh, some of the people around him, like Michael Flynn and other, were, for example, Pizzagate is, is, is just an example. And the Russians were doing this from both sides, not only from the white supremacists, but also later on when it was working 
with the extreme right and the white supremacists and neo-Nazis, they start doing it also with the extreme left. And we have actually demonstrations happening with people hitting each other on American streets because of invites to these demonstrations by groups on Facebook that run by Saint, from St. Saint Petersburg. Mm. So when we start noticing all these things, we started to notice that this infringe, this, this fringe you know, group are becoming emboldened. And now we started to see also support by a foreign government. At that time, it was Russia only. And then we started to see connections between the United States and between groups overseas in Western countries. And then suddenly we started to monitor a movement of white supremacists traveling to Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine. And then Ukraine, a little bit by a little bit, started to take the shape of Afghanistan for the jihadis. They go there, they have combat experience, they network, they um, meet people from different countries who have the same different thoughts and ideas, and then they go back to do bad things in their own societies. Mm -hmm. So we start monitoring these things, and between the use of social media, the way they recruit, the way they, you know, um, you know, promote conspiracies and put it out there, the way they take advantage of deep partisan divide in the society in order to find a niche for themselves and make they make themselves more more mainstream. Um, we started to notice a lot of similarities between that and between Al Qaeda and between what the jihadis did. You said something really worth repeating, which is you're saying there's clear evidence that American extremists travel abroad for training, orientation, indoctrination. I can actually, I can actually go beyond that. We have more American citizens who traveled abroad for indoctrination and training than we had Americans who, to, who went and joined ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Mm, yeah, yeah. Worth, worth uh, Americans understanding. We can be so uh, U.S.-centric in our thinking and thinking that the domestic threat is solely a domestic threat. But you, you've reminded us of two issues. Uh, one is the, the foreign influence with regard to disinformation and radicalization through propaganda. And now, very, very physically, the training and travel aspect. Well, imagine we have an organization called The Base. You know what The Base means in Arabic? Al-Qaeda. Al and they use Inspire magazines. They advocate for global jihad. They wanted to create a clandestine guerrilla warfare um, by lone actors in order to disrupt the society for the U.S. government to fall so they can have a white ethnostate. Uh, they have a black flag <laughs> like Al-Qaeda. And um, they, um, they are not shy about saying that um, they are copying Al-Qaeda in order to destroy and attack the United States. Let me ask you this. With your, when, with, go ahead. No, please. But, 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 but if you don't mind, let me just to, to say this was extremely important. When the leader of the organization was arrested because of a threat, uh, unfortunately, the prosecutors could not file terrorism charges because we don't have terrorism charges in America for domestic. So he was released. And guess where he is now? In Moscow. When the head of Autumn Waffen was released, where is he? Where did he go? To Moscow. When the head of the Rise uh, Above movement in LA, um, you know, a couple of guys get arrested after they came from Ukraine, uh, joined Azov in Ukraine, um, um, a neo-Nazi organization. You can, you know, your listeners can download the complaint from 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 online. Um, guess what? Um, when he was released, because again, a judge 
um, said, are you filing terrorism charges? Prosecutors said, no, we can't. And then uh, he released him. He ended up in Russia as well. So hello, it's all there. You have Canada. Canada is one of our strongest ally. We share a big border with Canada. We have a lot of cultural, economic, political, you know, relationship with Canada. Canada, a NATO country, five-I country, identified nine American organizations as an international terrorist organization. Exactly. Right? So, and what do we do in the United States? We don't even declare them as international terrorist organization. So imagine the U.S. identified, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all these groups as terrorist organizations, and you go to people in the Middle East and we say, oh, no, yeah, we see your point, but mm, what can we do? We cannot identify them as terrorist organizations. That's what's happening. We are today the Mecca of white supremacy. And just because these guys are not doing anything, because they are building the network, they are taking advantage of the political divide, they are um, you know, working on uh, creating a bigger network for themselves, that's why they are not doing anything now. It does not mean that we shouldn't pay attention to them. I'll give you an example. After January 6th, there was a big movement in the white supremacists' uh, platforms, on their channels on the platforms, to include Telegram and others. They were saying, this is our time to reach out to the megatards. Now, megatards is not my term. It's their term. They're talking about the mega people. Mm. Um, this is our time to reach out because now we can recruit them. And we don't have to talk about World War II, about the Holocaust, about Normandy. The only thing we have to talk to, to talk about is taxation without representation. Because now they believe that the U.S. government it's not a legitimate government, but they are still paying taxes. That should be our, and, and guess what? These things are happening. These things are happening. And unfortunately, the political leadership don't want to look at it because it's a very sensitive topic uh, politically and Congress is not doing much about it. The Bureau is doing a lot. DHS is doing a lot. Law enforcement is doing a lot in dealing with it. The military and the Pentagon, for the first time ever, they had to do a study about radicalization in the military, a policy. And unfortunately, the political leadership, they are doing the same thing they did before the East Africa embassy bombing, before the USS call, and before 9-11. Yeah, the comparison is chilling. The comparison is chilling, and history does indeed repeat itself. Well, if you're if you're looking back at this episode and thinking to yourselves, this would be a, uh, this would be a great book or a great television series. The answer is you're right. It would. And and uh, uh, Ali, tell us tell us about a little bit about where folks can find your writings, your books, um, and um, the fact that you've got a Hulu television series based on your experience called The Looming Tower. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. So uh, I wrote about my experience in the government um, back in um, 2011, on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. The book was uh, The Black Banners. Um, the Bureau um, approved the book, and then suddenly the agency heavily redacted it. Uh, fortunately, after nine years, uh, we fought hard enough, and we had the book declassified. So now it's published again. Um, republished, declassified with uh, all the, the redactions that shows how we actually get information 
without the use of torture. Um, they didn't want anybody to know how we got the information. They just wanted people to think that you put water on somebody's face and they're going to tell you everything. Then I wrote another book called Anatomy of Terror, which is basically the, the jihadi movement from the death of bin Laden until uh, you know, the, the rise of ISIS. Uh, detailed, uh, you know, profiles about many of the leaders of the movement. And I did a lot of different, um, you know, uh, profiles in CTC, the Sentinel in West Point. Uh, we had a profile about Hamza bin Laden. About a year and a half after the profile, Hamza was killed. Then we did a profile about Soleimani. Again, a year after that, Soleimani was killed. And then um, I... Um, did a profile about Abu Muhammad al-Masri. Again, a year after that, Abu Muhammad al-Masri was killed. And now we have a you know, profile on Saif al-Adl. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, those profiles are really kind of phenomenal profiles to read. The, you know, the, the, I, I, I meant it not to be about the individual, but to me about everything, you know, understanding an era, understanding a narrative, understanding an ideology, through the eye of the individual that uh, being profiled. And now there is a new documentary on HBO that I'm um, featured in is about torture. And in it, there is um, all, there are all my um, um, uh, notes that I took during the interviews. And it showed that after we left, um, the black site with the Abu Zubaydah interview, not one single piece of intelligence, accurate piece of intelligence was produced. And, and that is this, is, uh, is this documentary out already on HBO? Yeah, yeah it's on HBO Max. Uh, mm-hmm. It's by Alex Gibney, mm-hmm. the very famous uh, documentarian. It's called The Forever Prisoner. The Forever Prisoner, um, yeah. yeah. And for those who haven't yet seen The Looming Tower on Hulu, I, I highly, highly recommend it. And and I actually, you know, when it, when you see some of the John when, O'Neill is in it too. Yes, in, uh, indeed. Jeff Daniels played yeah. John O'Neill. Yeah, <laughs> uh, astound, astounding uh, job there for all. This has been uh, an amazing discussion that I think could go on for hours more, but time time uh, calls us all to something else. I uh, want to thank you for your service to this nation for your sacrifice personally and professionally for always championing the truth and for the tenacity you you brought up you brought up an issue that the oath we take as FBI agents really doesn't and never should end when the last paycheck comes and i think you're a shining example of that thank you so much not only for joining us but for your service to the country Thank you, Frank. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, thank you for your service as well. Indeed. Indeed. Stay safe, my friend. You too, buddy. All right. Take care. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 